Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Wednesday, March 8th, we are studying John chapter 12, verses 20 to 33. In today's text, Jesus has just entered Jerusalem for the Passover feast. While he is there in Jerusalem, some Greeks approach Philip with a request. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Dustin Beck. Pastor Beck serves at Holy Cross Lutheran Church in Warda, Texas. Pastor Beck, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Good morning, Pastor Apple. How are you? I'm fantastic. How are you, Pastor Beck? Just living the dream. Fantastic. Are you teaching New Testament this semester? I think I ask you this every time, and I forget every time. That's just fine. That's just fine. Yeah, I'm teaching New Testament at Faith Lutheran High School, and uh, we're having a lot of fun. We're uh, making our way through Paul's epistles, uh, which is a lot of material to cover in just a semester. So we're uh, we're we're pushing forward. <laughs> Fantastic. Fantastic. Now, did you study the Gospel of John when you were in the a previous unit? We did. We did. We we studied uh, John's Gospel in entirety uh, all the way back in November. So it was still a little early uh, in the uh, in the semester, the first semester for our students. Uh, but yeah, we walked right through every verse of John. Um, we go through the entire New Testament in our course, which is you know that's a lot of material for freshman and sophomore high school to cover. Uh, but we. We give um, we give uh, special treatment to Mark uh, since it's the shortest of the synoptic gospels, uh, and then we compare Matthew to Mark, Luke to Mark, and Matthew to Luke, if that makes sense. <laughs> um, and then we cover John uh, in in total as well because it's just so uh, such a different narrative and such a different uh, almost style and, and layout. So you've, you've taught the Gospel of John to high school students already this year. So help us as we jump into part of John 12 today. What should we know about the Gospel, surrounding context, as we want to learn these verses today? Well, I feel like I'm, I'm being uh, put to the test today. Like, well, you can teach high schoolers. Can you teach us? I'm cer- <laughs> I'll certainly try. Um, so where we are in John 12 is where John's Gospel really sort of, uh, well, when it becomes very much more... Um, in a linear storytelling fashion. So um, if you'll remember, uh, guests, if you've heard me talk, and I know several of your other guests have made this point that John is written in a less linear fashion. You know, we tend to think of stories as starting with the beginning and ending with the end. Um, And, you know, sort of things happen in sequence. Um, A lot of us uh, would suggest that John is written with more of a thematic purpose in mind. Now, that's not to say that there aren't uh, certain features of John that are very regimented in time. So we have uh, three different references to the Passover in John. We have uh, all of these different uh, sort of, you, you can say temporal markers where it'll say, you know, it's six days later or, you know, the next day. Uh, we have all of that going on, but I would still argue 
that John has written much more from a thematic sort of outline where you have these contrasts that are built in uh, of, for instance, Nicodemus in chapter three contrasted with the woman, uh, the Samaritan woman in chapter four, the one who should get it and doesn't, the one who you wouldn't think would get it. And by the end, we actually kind of think maybe she does. Uh, you have these different sort of themes that unfold through John's gospel. It's a very sophisticated gospel for one that is written in such simple English. But as I was saying, when we get to John chapter 12, it's almost like now John is going to be very intentional about uh, we are at Palm Sunday. We have the triumphal entry. Now it's time for uh, events to almost just grind to a halt. Now, he doesn't include all of the same, excuse me, all of the same details uh, for uh, Holy Monday, Holy Tuesday uh, that the uh, synoptics do. Because John's concern is to get into the upper room where um, the synoptics will give us, you know, a chapter or two in the upper room. John is going to, you know, grind to a halt. And from John 13 to John 18, we're going to be in the upper room with Jesus, hearing his sermons, his teachings, his, uh, you know, the detail of him washing the disciples' feet, all of that. So we're sort of in that, uh, in our text today, in that transition time between all of the major thematic purposes of John's gospel, and then that time when we're going to the upper room to be with Jesus before he offers up his uh, life as a ransom for many. So that might serve as sort of uh, broad, uh, broad focus, you know, narrowing our focus down to where we are today. Um, there's also, uh, we'll talk about this once we get into the text, uh, there's a great sort of um, I don't know if you'd say maybe a domino that falls right in the very first verse, uh, but we're going to have this sort of now is the time we've been building up and it's always been not yet, not yet, not yet. And in today's text, uh, I'm, I'm very privileged to uh, to be the one uh, that is walking through this text with you, Pastor Apple, because today is when the dominoes really start falling. Uh, they've been there's been so much build up and now it's finally it's finally all going to happen. We talked about in a previous episode that we are like at the end here, and yet there is so much material that John has yet to cover. As you pointed out, so much of it happens on Monday, Thursday in the upper room. With the text that we have today, do you, do you picture this happening on Palm Sunday, almost not maybe not immediately after the previous text, but kind of really quick succession? I, at least the way that I think of it, I think that that is, you know, the crowd is still kind of here gathered around Jesus, the same crowd that has welcomed him in. There's, uh, there's no indication uh, in the text that, you know, like I mentioned before, when you have, you know, the next day he met, you know, you know, met Philip who went and got Nathaniel, et cetera. You don't have any of that in here. So I'm inclined to say that this is just kind of one of those, you know, bang, bang things where you've got Mary anoints Jesus. You've got, uh, of course, in our ESV Bibles, we've got some of the um, some of the other uh, uh, subject headings where you've got uh, in verses 9, 10, 11, the plot to kill Lazarus, um, to put him back to death. <laughs> right. And yeah. then the triumphal entry leads right into this these Greeks that have come to to see Jesus they want to hear more about him so I think it's at least the way that I read it is that this is in the in the same time in the same moment as uh, Jesus coming in and the Pharisees uh, just throwing up their hands that's that's really the the verse that is the uh, you know you're a musician uh, it, it's it's the pickup note to what's going to happen in our text today Right. Is that this crowd goes out to meet Jesus. They heard that he had raised Lazarus and the Pharisees. I mean, you've got to I mean, if 
if we didn't know that the Pharisees were sort of the bad guys in this situation, you'd almost feel for him because it's like, what, this guy's even raising people from the dead? And like, you know, apparently a prominent guy who had, you know, professional mourners outside of his, you know, his grave and his home and everything, you know, they're, they're, they're throwing their hands up and just saying, you know, what, what can we do? You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. And that's the way that yesterday's text ended. So then we get into, well, what's in front of us today. So we pick up the text beginning at John 12, verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, An angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. That is our text for today. That's John 12, verses 20 to 33. Pastor Beck, you said we have a little bit of a pickup note moving from one text to the, the next. We've got in the previous text, the Pharisees saying, look, the world has gone after him. Here, there are some Greeks that want to see Jesus. Take us into that connection a little bit more. Tell us about these Greeks. Yes, absolutely. So these Greeks, uh, we would call them proselytes. That is, they have uh, they were Greek-born. They have become Jews. Um and they're going to be sort of the stand-in for this, the world has gone after him, because these are foreigners, but these are foreigners who, you know, to the Pharisees, they're they're actually doing the right thing. They've they've come to the 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 faith of of the Jews. They've uh, likely you know they've obviously been circumcised. They're keeping kosher. They're doing table fellowship. All the things that they were supposed to do. They're it, we're told that they're. They went up to Jerusalem to worship at the feast. This is going to be uh, the feast of the Passover. So they're they're uh, at least observing, as far as we can tell uh, from the text, they're observing the law like they're supposed to. And it's like, you know, these are the ones that the Pharisees would want. And now they are coming and they're going to go and see Jesus. So you almost have this, uh, as I mentioned, kind of this bang, bang, like one right after the other of um, when, and I love this happens quite a bit in the Gospels, where you'll have these folks that are giving, um, you know, inadvertently sort of a prophecy, right? Uh, it, John talks about that. That Caiaphas does this, you know, he's speaking not of his own accord, but you know, the Spirit gave him these words. So when they say, you know, you see that you are gaining nothing, look, the whole world has gone out after him. Then we blink, and all of a sudden we see folks from the world, folks not from the lineage and you know bloodline of Abraham, but instead we see these foreigners coming uh, and begin to, well, to inquire about Jesus. And I think it's also important here to note 
that Jesus's ministry primarily, and this is in all four Gospels, primarily his ministry is toward the the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It's it's only incidentally, and we uh, this was the first time that I ever heard this. It kind of jumped out of you know somebody said it, and I I really had to push back a little bit. I said, but what about the Syrophoenician woman? What about the Samaritan woman? What about the the centurion? And what about you know uh, all of these different these different folks that come out? But most of those folks they they for one reason or another they wind up coming up to Jesus. And, you know, in the example of the Syrophoenician woman, for instance, remember how harshly Jesus, uh, you know, it, it seems is going to send her away. You know, I've come for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It's not right to give the children's bread to the dogs. But then she responds with those words of faith, you know, yes, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And so we see that Jesus is primarily, and that's not to say that Jesus doesn't love the whole world. Of course, John 3.16 is still in effect. Um, that's not to say that Jesus didn't come to seek and to save all who were lost. Uh, but Jesus's primary ministry is towards the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And it's, it's in his resurrection and just prior to his ascension that he gives the apostles that their, uh, their marching orders, uh, that they are to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Um, so as the book of Acts unfolds, uh, we see that the, the reign of God is not just having its effect upon the ancient people of God who already had the covenants, the, the, uh, the account, the Old Testament, uh, the promises, etc., but that it's going out uh, even as far as Godfrey, Illinois, and Warda, Texas. That's, that is, is the trajectory that it will go on. And I, mm, I want to say that right here, this might be the pivoting you know, kind of section where all of a sudden Jesus is now, you know, the ministry is going out even even more broadly than it has up until this point. That might be too big well, and, of a claim. <laughs> well, and I, I was going to go there. There's some things we need to pick up in between. Oh, but sure, I was going to sure. mention that because it, it is striking then that with Jesus being the, the one who's come to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, as he says, for example, in Matthew 10, it's actually at this moment where these Greeks show up that he suddenly says the hour is is here now, yeah. whereas before the hour was coming, it's not yet here. We're waiting still, but suddenly it's here, and and it arrives when the Greeks show up, as opposed to say in just the previous text, he doesn't announce the hour when he rides into Jerusalem on the donkey, as foretold by Zechariah, and now he's saying the hour is here when the Greeks show up. So there is, I mean, there's something to that. Again, I know there's things we need to pick up in between, but I think there's, I think you're onto something to say that there's a a pretty significant pivot that happens here with the arrival of these Greeks that really helps us to see what the ministry of Jesus is all about. Right. Right. And I, when you say there's something in between where we were, and well, we need we're to going, talk about Andrew, Philip, yeah, all those things. I was jumping okay. all the way to verse 23. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm absolutely with you. Uh, and I, I, I want to get there too. Uh, really the, the stuff with, with Philip and Andrew, um, that, that's, that's, we're on the same page, Pastor Apple. Yeah, this is this is a good conversation to have. Um, Philip and Andrew, this is really, what I'm going to say is that this is another example of the way that John tells a story. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll mention this, uh, I'll mention it and I'll, I'll, I'll at least bring it up in this way. I'll say, in John's gospel, when Thomas says something, you know that something big is about to happen, right? Yeah. So the, yeah. I can think of three times that Thomas speaks, you know, off the top of my head. And that is, you know, uh, Thomas uh, sets up Jesus for I am the way, the truth and the life. 
in John 14, right? right? Um, he says, Lord, where are you going? We don't know the way. And Jesus goes, I am the way, the truth and the life, right? Uh, previous to that, uh, you had in John, um, it's John 11 when Lazarus right. has died. And, um, you know, Jesus says, listen, look, I'm going to tell you plainly, Lazarus is dead. You know, it's, it's a good thing for your sake that he is dead because he knows what he's about to do. And Thomas, you know, sort of goes, he's, I guess everybody doesn't want Jesus to go back towards Jerusalem because that's, they're wanting to kill you now. And so Thomas goes, well, I guess we'll go with you so that we can die too, which is, is more profound than we realize, you know, but what a beautiful statement. And then finally, you know, in the resurrection, you know, after when Thomas isn't there on the night when Jesus rose, you know, uh, you know, unless I, you know, touch his hands and and see his side, you know, and all this kind of stuff, I will never believe. So Thomas is sort of the setup guy for something cool that's about to happen, at least, you know, and I'm not saying that, I'm not saying that these things didn't literally happen because they did, but the way that John tells the story, he emphasizes you know, and it's kind of like the way that we always emphasize Peter as being the guy who's going to, you know, get up and chop the servant of the high priest's ear off or, right. you know, jump out of the boat to walk with Jesus. Or, you know, he's always the guy who's going to do something impetuously. Um, anyways, so Philip and Andrew, they show up. And again, there are these three times in John's gospel when we sort of have a Philip and Andrew scene. That goes all the way back to chapter one when... Um, right. Andrew is among the first of the disciples that uh, Jesus calls, probably Andrew and St. John himself. And then what does Andrew go and do? Well, he gets goes and grabs his brother Peter and brings him along. And then Philip, he's going to do the same thing. Uh, I, I have it mistyped in my notes. I had a typo there, but uh, looking at notes again. Philip goes uh, the very next day, and when Jesus says, hey, come follow me, he goes first and he grabs you know his friend Nathaniel. And it mentions that they are uh, from that area. They are from you know, uh, from uh, Bethsaida, they're fr- from that area that's not exactly Jerusalem. It's not exactly the holy city. Um, they're from that more kind of Decapolis Greek area. So maybe this is the reason that uh, that these Greeks have gone up to Philip is because, hey, you know, it, we heard your name is Philip. You have a, a Greek sounding name. Uh, let's let's talk. You know, uh, we would like to see Jesus. Um, and then, yeah, so Philip and Andrew, they're the ones that are going to bring folks to Jesus. Uh, the other time that they are mentioned is on uh, in chapter six. Uh, with the uh, the feeding of the 5,000. Um, Philip sort of, I mean, he's the guy that says, you know, 200 days wages wouldn't be enough money to buy uh, food for everybody to even have a bite of bread. Um, and then right after that, you've got Andrew is the guy who goes, hey, look, there's this young boy. He's got five loaves of bread and two fish. So it seems like they're just this kind of this tag team. And I, I guess I'd never really thought of, you know, you always talk about Peter, James, and John. You have these different groupings of the disciples, but Philip and Andrew, they seem to be sort of equipped for bringing folks to Jesus and bringing stuff to Jesus and just kind of have that, that back and forth going. I think it's, I think it's really cool. Well, John, he does have a a way of highlighting the, the quote, minor disciples, the ones that don't get as much time dedicated to them in the synoptic gospels. It's later in, in chapter 14, where John even gives uh, some words to a Judas, not Iscariot, right. so the, the other Judas of the disciples even we hear from. So he does tend to highlight these more minor disciples, and we see, as you pointed out, they're often acting in similar ways. So we have Philip and Andrew once again bringing people to Jesus in this text. The other thing that, that we should pick up in between before we get to sure. Jesus' words in 23 is right. the request from the Greeks, yeah. sir, we wish to see Jesus. Isn't it beautiful? Isn't that great? Um, yeah. Do you uh, do you have these uh, these words uh, at your pulpit, 
there at Faye? I do not. Yeah. I do not. Do you have them there? So, so I, um, I had actually, I had printed them out uh, in the Greek uh, at my previous congregation and had put them uh, just under the light where, you know, I'm the only one that sees those. But this is, I've seen this in multiple pulpits that I've been in, and I haven't actually printed them out and uh, put them in a, in a place where I can see them here at Holy Cross. But I've got a long to-do list, and, and that's one of the things on it that would probably take me less than 10 seconds to do. Um, but... <laughs> Yeah, in a lot of pulpits, uh, this will either be, I've seen it engraved into pulpits, you know, that have like marble pulpits, and it's actually engraved in there, sir, we would see Jesus. Um, and I've, I've seen it, you know, like like I said, you know, printed out uh, in various different uh, different ways. This is a, a just a handy little reminder for all pastors everywhere that this is your job. This is the request that the people that are sitting out there in the pews looking back in your general direction, this is what they want. Um, you know, so uh, maybe this is something to help keep pastors' uh, eyes on the ball. You know, this is something to keep us from, you know, uh, this sermon that I'm about to deliver, it's, you know, the the opening anecdote or, you know, God forbid, and, and I'm not trying to be judgy here, but, you know, the, the opening joke, oh, goodness, don't get me started, right? Um, or, you know, the, the application of how we as Christians can, you know, live the life that Christ has called us to. Like, these are important things, not the joke, obviously. Hope, hopefully that's obvious. But the point here is point them to Jesus, right? Uh, you're John the Baptist when you're standing up in that pulpit in two very important ways. First of all, that you are the one pointing to Jesus and not to yourself. And second, that you would have that mind uh, that I must decrease and he must increase. That is the the point, the purpose of every single Christian sermon um, is not that you would have, you know, people pat your uh, pat, uh, pat you on the back after the after the service and say, Pastor, I just love your sermon today. You're such a good preacher, you know, um, and, and I, I struggled with this for a while um, because it was, you know, I don't want to sound too proud and say, oh, I really enjoyed that sermon I preached too, you know, or, you know, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and so, you know, I've, I've gotten to a place where I just say, you know, to God be the glory, which yeah. in its own way, kind of when I first started saying that in response to people, it felt kind of like I was, that almost felt like kind of a holier than thou kind of response, you know, to God be the glory. But you know, I've, I've kind of just doubled down on that. I'm, you know, sometimes I'll say, you know, to God be the glory, you know, thank you for your kind words, you know, but I do want to show appreciation, but it's, it's never about me. It's, it's, I'm, I'm not that good at this stuff and I'm not, you know, trying to feign humility here. It's always about seeing Jesus. So, yeah, that's our, uh, that's our prayer, certainly uh, for every sermon that we preach. Yeah, and I think in this context, it, it also adds to what the preacher should be about there in the pulpit. You know, how do we see Jesus, particularly? When you think about the context of this request, you've got these Greeks who are looking for Jesus, and it doesn't say why they're looking for Jesus specifically. I suppose there's any number of reasons. As you mentioned, perhaps they approach Philip and Andrew because they've got the Greek names and we know they're from near the Decapolis. And maybe these are Greeks who are from the Decapolis. Sure. But, you know, why are they approaching Jesus? Is it because they too have heard about Lazarus and the sign that Jesus did? You know, we've seen around Jesus at this point lots of people who want to see him because of the signs without necessarily the faith in his words or in, in who he truly is. And I think in this context, the request, sir, we wish to see Jesus, 
Jesus is actually going to do that at this moment. He's going to let people see him, yeah. but as he's done in, in many contexts, he wants people to see him particularly in his glory, which happens in his death and his resurrection. Right. Yeah, that's that's a really great point to make is that, you know, um, we're not really given the reasoning in verse 21 of why they want to see Jesus. You know, and this is this the only time? It's the only time that I can think of that somebody comes and they just want to see Jesus, and they want to see him almost. Maybe I'm reading too much into this. They want to see him on his terms. It's not, you know, um, you know, I I need to talk to Jesus because my daughter is sick, or I need to talk to Jesus because you know my servant, in terms of the centurion, my servant has fallen ill or anything like that. It's just we want to see Jesus, um, and so what is it going to look like to see Jesus? Well. Now Jesus is going to allow the hour to come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And that's what we've been sort of been winding up for, I think, uh, for the last five or six minutes, uh, is to get to this point when Jesus finally is going to let the hour come. Right? All right. So that's in verse 23. Jesus answers them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. We have right around two minutes before our break, Pastor Beck. Help us into that verse. Okay, yeah. So um, we've had all the way back in chapter 2, verse 3, uh, back in chapter 7, verse 30, and uh, 8, verse 20, we've heard uh, from Jesus himself and also from John the Evangelist um, that his hour had not yet come. So remember Jesus at uh, the wedding at Cana tells his mother, you know, my hour has not yet come. And then there's uh, the other two, I believe, are when people are trying to kill Jesus. But then John sort of interjects and says, you know, his hour had not yet come. It wasn't time. Now it is time. And like I said, I don't know if I'm reading too far into this to say that when the Greeks show up and they want to see Jesus and not for any specific reason, but show us Jesus, right? Now the hour has come. Now people are, are ready. You, you are looking to see what, you know, to see Jesus as he will be revealed. Um, and so now we're going to see what it means for him to be glorified. Um, we're going to see that his glory is found in the weakness, um, the absolute humiliation, uh, which is humility pushed all the way to the extreme. We're going to see that uh, as he gives up his life for, uh, for many as a ransom. So we're going to keep looking at that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking about John chapter 12 with Pastor Dustin Beck this morning. We will be right back. Please stick around. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable, a college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran, A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org, subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back 
to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, March 8th. We're studying John chapter 12, verses 20 to 33 with Pastor Dustin Beck. He serves at Holy Cross Lutheran Church in Ward, Texas. Pastor Beck, prior to the break, we came to the momentous occasion in verse 23 where Jesus says the hour has come. After many notices that the hour was not yet here, now it finally is here that these Greeks have come to see Jesus. And he says it is time for the Son of Man to be glorified. And he goes on throughout really the rest of our text to explain how that glorification happens. So how does he begin to unfold that in verse 24? He talks about a grain of wheat dying. What's what's he saying? Yeah, so and this is this is so beautiful because when he says the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified, it's not that we immediately see glory right there. You know, um, a few weeks back we had uh, Transfiguration Sunday, um, which is ironically not in John's gospel, right? But he talks about it in one of his letters, okay? But uh, so we have the um, we have this uh, this idea of okay, now it's time for the son of man to be glorified. So what does that mean, Jesus? Well, truly, truly, I say to you, as several other guests uh, previous have mentioned, amen, amen, or telling you the truth right now. And when Jesus tells the truth, he really does tell the truth. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. He says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit, right? The idea here is that uh, Jesus gives this analogy of the fact that he is going to be uh, buried into the earth, just like a grain of wheat. Uh, But then, you know, when you bury a grain of wheat, what happens? Well, it it sprouts back up, not as a grain of wheat, but as something much greater, as something much more. And so Jesus will rise again. And when he rise again, uh, Paul talks about it this way quite a bit, that Jesus is the first fruits of those who sleep, right? That he has been dead, buried, and then raised again. And his resurrection is a first fruits pledge and promise of our own resurrection on the last day. Um, and so that bearing much fruit is the fact that the, uh, the church that Jesus Christ plants, right, it's going to continue to blossom, to grow, to expand, and to extend throughout the world. So the the image that Jesus uses there in verse 24 of the grain of wheat needing to fall into the earth and die so that it can have this harvest is at least one way that we see when we talk about Jesus' glorification, his death has to be a part of it. It's not sort of an incidental thing, but it's actually part and parcel to the glorification. It, It includes the resurrection, of course. But it's not like the death is just sort of a bump in the road along the way. His death actually is a part of the glory that Jesus has. Yeah, I think we could say that it is not a bug, it is a feature, right? This is part of the program. Jesus dying is... That is uh, the glory of, uh, of of the Son of Man, is him laying down his life so that, as we said a couple of chapters ago, uh, he can take it up again. The, this is I was talking about this a couple of weeks back with my uh, first-year confirmands. We're going through the second article of the Creed, and we talked about the fact that that when Jesus dies, his death, it is that is the moment in which he is overcoming, when he is beating, when he is winning against the devil against our sin. And then when he rises again, he's overcoming death as well. So um, this looks like defeat that Jesus would, uh, like a grain of wheat, fall down into the earth and die. But this is actually his victory. Um, It's just we have this twisted view of glory because we are fallen. Um, (laughs) This twisted view of glory that to be glorified is just to be lifted up, is just to um, to be in a state of well, uh, power or majesty or things like that. It's almost like when the devil tempted 
the woman and said, you know, you know, so that you can be like God, the, the dirty little secret. And the reason that he's a liar from the beginning is that they were already like God, right? They were glorified beyond any other, you know, any other being in all of creation. And they threw that glory away. And now Jesus comes and he takes on the glory of being the, the one uh, who is, you know, part of the loving of the world so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That's, that is the, the work of Jesus as he lays down his life, uh, like a grain of wheat falling into the earth. That's, that's what Jesus is talking about. This is what it means for the son of man to be glorified. Hmm. Now, as he continues in verse 25, he says, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. How does this connect to what Jesus has been talking about? And what does Jesus mean when he talks about the difference between loving your life or hating your life? Yeah, this is this is a, a weird idiom. It's kind of a um, it's a, uh, it's more of a sort of uh, Hebraic way of thinking, um, and it's it's referred to I think in in all of the grammars or most of the grammars um, as a um, as a an idiom of preference. Okay. And so this isn't saying like, you know, uh, I have to walk around every day if I want to be a good Christian and just be like, you know, I hate my life and be all glum and things like that. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Uh, But instead, I I mean, maybe the way that we could rephrase it would be like this. If you love your life more than eternal life, you'll lose the eternal life. Okay. So whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. That's saying, you know, what is your top priority? What is, what is number one for you? Uh, if it's, you know, this life and all of its comforts and all of its pleasures and everything like that, didn't Jesus talk about that in one of his parables? I think, yeah, that the, the cares and the pleasures of this life will choke out the word of God, which is like a seed cast by a sower. It's almost like Jesus's you know, riffing off of the, the, uh, parable of the sower here in Mm. John chapter 12. I don't know about that, but it's the, it's the same kind of idea here. And so we shouldn't understand this as, you know, I have to hate my life, you know, or anything like that, lest I, you know, uh, if I accidentally love my life, like if I have a, you know, I've got a wife and, you know, beautiful children at home, I've got uh, a great job that I love and, you know, I've got all of this. Well, um, I do kind of love those things, but the question is, you know, do you love uh, do you love them more than you love Jesus and His kingdom? Do you love these uh, more than the eternal life that is yours uh, through faith in Christ? Okay, and it's maybe this is even you know uh, we could you know our theologian listeners could take their imaginations back to you know I mean the sacrifice of Isaac is that a fair place to go right um, Abraham. <laughs> You know, do you love this little child whom God has given you the promise that through him will your offspring be named? Do you love him more than you love uh, the Lord who has given you this promise? Of course, Abraham, by by God's grace, I can't imagine that situation, but by God's grace and by Abraham's, you know, faith in the promise, he sides with God. Oh, man, I, I can't imagine walking up that mountain carrying the knife in his hand. You know, uh, how does he feel about I mean, he's probably hates his life in that moment. Like, this is what my life has to look like, you know, um, sacrificing this child that God has given to me. OK, yeah, we're, we're getting off on a tangent, but I think that it's maybe instructive in this uh, that we are talking about a preference here. What comes first, uh, which, again, even in that light that may be a hard thing for our listeners, indeed for ourselves, you know, for you and myself to, to mm-hmm. consider is like, I mean, 
it's hard to put Jesus first. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think the example of Abraham and Isaac is helpful in the sense that the way the writer of the Hebrews describes it and preaches oh, sure. it in Hebrews chapter 11, yeah. that Abraham was willing to do that because he believed that God would raise his son from the dead. Oh, yeah. And, and I think that's a helpful thing to keep in mind as we listen to what Jesus says here and, and seek to, to do what he has given us, that the reason we can you know, choose the things of God over the things of this life and the things of man is because we know that God will preserve what is needed and right. he will he will give us life back from from death and it's it's only in that confidence that I think we can even begin to understand and do what Jesus is talking about here he'll take care of it in the end right yeah yeah mm-hmm. i mean this is the way for example just to to use uh, luther's hymn a mighty fortress and take they our life goods fame child and wife though these all be gone they yet have nothing won. Yeah. The kingdom ours remaineth. You know, I mean that—that's the kind of confidence that we can we can keep this verse because of the confidence we have in the resurrection. Yeah, absolutely. Very, very good yeah. point. Yeah. So whoever loves his life right now loses it. The preference in this life, seeking to preserve all the things of this life, in the end they will be gone. It will be lost. But whoever hates his life, whoever preserves not the things of this world, but the things of eternity. They, he will keep that. The Lord will give him eternal life. This is what is happening here. Now, Jesus continues, If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. It seems like he's, he's kind of tying the, the things he said together. So he's going to be the grain of wheat who falls into the earth and dies, and then we follow him, and, and we remain his servants. This is, sounds like a, a very wonderful promise from the Lord there in verse 26. Absolutely, yeah. And so Jesus, uh, as he said before, you know, that anyone who follows me must take up his cross and follow me. Uh, the same kind of an idea here is that um, like these Greeks who have, you know, want to see Jesus, you know, our our attitude as Christians is I want to be where Jesus is. And if that means that we're going to, you know, suffer crosses or, you know, uh, or, or persecution, if that means we're going to, you know, if the, if families are going to be turned two against three and three against two, however it works out, right. Um, then so be it, because like you said, in the end, Jesus has it all worked out for us. Yeah. I I love that point that you just made, uh, from uh, a mighty fortress. What a great, what a great way to think about this text is that we're going to, uh, you know, by, by God's rich grace, we're going to hold Jesus as, as first and as only, and everything else will fall into line because he has all authority in heaven and on earth. As Jesus continues into verse 27, there seems to be a bit of a shift. He, he now speaks about himself and what he's going through. I don't know if I can put it that way, going up to this moment that his hour has now come. He says, my soul is troubled. And he, he starts to deliberate, it sounds like, before finally uttering prayer to his father. What do we see Jesus saying in verses 27 and into 28? Yeah, um, so this is one of those times when you actually have Jesus sort of thinking out loud. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? He's not going to say that, right? I mean, you know, he'll at the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus is, is, is at probably his lowest point uh, in the Gospels, save maybe his, uh, his uh, temptation, um, we have Jesus saying, you know, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. But Jesus understands, not my will be done, but, but yours, Father. Uh, and so he really is, you know, in light of this grain of wheat falling and dying, right? He's saying now, 
for this purpose, I have come to this hour. This is the whole reason that, that Jesus uh, came to earth in his incarnation, that he was born of the Virgin Mary, that he lived this perfect life, that he has fulfilled every single uh, you know, uh, iota of the law. He has done all of this to come to this point so that now his active obedience uh, can can sort of transition into his passive obedience, which is to say the people are going to do to me what they are going to do to me, which is this world is going to chew Jesus up and spit him out, reject him in their final act of of rebellion against God. But it is in that rebellion that that the Lord has mercy on us for the sake of Jesus. That's when uh, when God forsakes Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He turns his back on Jesus, who is bearing all of the sins of the world, so that your sins and mine might be nailed to the cross, might be on Jesus, and God would look upon us um, with the favor that he has towards Jesus uh, on account of his righteousness. So Jesus sees all of this unfolding in front of him and Yes, for this purpose I have come to this hour. And then in verse 28, it begins uh, with his own prayer, Father, glorify your name, which is what's mm. going to happen uh, for the rest of the book. Okay, so the the Father, glorify your name, that's not just going to happen at this moment, but right. it's actually going to be the rest of, of John's gospel is going to recount how that happens. It, it is striking, as we were talking earlier, that John doesn't give us too many of the events of Holy Week. We're here on Palm Sunday, and then he's going to fast forward to Monday, Thursday, starting in chapter 13. What what he records here in verses 27, well, I guess mostly just 27, it sounds an awful lot like what he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, Yeah, such, such that, you know, we know that on the one hand, he is resolutely going to the cross, he goes willingly, and yet at the same time, we see that that turmoil within him, which is striking, especially in John's gospel, because over and over again, Jesus has been emphasizing, I and the Father, we do the same thing. I'm doing what my Father sent me to do. I mean, that resolution is very forefront in John's gospel. But we also see, you know, the very real human nature that Jesus has, I think, in, in a verse like this. I completely agree. Yeah, Jesus is, um, he's torn over something that he knows he's going to do, but it's not going to be easy, and it's not going to be um it's not going to be, you know, particularly enjoyable for him. Yeah, yeah. So he he prays here, but with that same resolve that we see in the Garden of Gethsemane later in the Synoptics and that we've seen throughout, such that his prayer finally is, Father, glorify your name, which is going to happen through the rest of this book. How does the Father answer that prayer right here in the very immediate context? Oh, it's this must have just been, you know, awe-inspiring. It must have been terrifying. This voice came from heaven. I have glorified it. I will glorify it again. So there's this looking back from the voice and this looking forward uh, in uh, in this voice. And the crowd thinks that there's thunder. They, you know, as somebody said, uh, maybe that was an angel speaking to him. Uh, and then Jesus says, this voice has come for your sake, not for mine. Um, I find it interesting that back in John chapter 5, all the way back in chapter five, um, when Jesus is in one of his uh, his long sort of discourses where he's uh, equating himself with God and talking about his authority and everything else. Uh, John chapter five, verse 37, he says, the father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. So I think that that's a little bit of a tip about what's going on right here is that 
um, the people who hear these words and understand them, namely you, Pastor Apple, myself, everybody who's read these words uh, of John that are recorded here, we get it. We see it. I have glorified it. I will glorify it again. But the people who are right there in the middle of it, I don't think that they quite grasp what's going on. Does that does that kind of track a little bit? <laughs> yeah, I think so. It it is, you know, on the one hand, John tells us that nobody really understood what was being said, and yet Jesus says, "It is for your sake, not for mine." Right. I think the way that that you described it is helpful. And they did hear something, you know, they heard either the thunder or they heard some sort of voice that they knew wasn't just Jesus talking as an, or one of the disciples, you know, doing a ventriloquist act in the background Uh. or something like that, right? They know that there is this, this heavenly voice of some sort. And so that is maybe perhaps for the people there at the moment, another sign that, Hey, pay attention to what this man is telling you. You need to listen to him. And it is in that sense for them and not maybe the other, the other thing to say is it's not only for Jesus' sake. I I think there is probably some strengthening for Jesus, but primarily he's saying it is for your sake, and then especially for you and me as readers of this gospel, so that we might know the truth of what Jesus is saying here. So this is one of those, uh, this is the the less known, I think, of the three instances in the New Testament where the Father's voice speaks from heaven. We know pretty well the baptism of Jesus and the transfiguration. Here's the other one that happens here in John chapter 12. And John, let's see, John doesn't record the baptism directly, but we get the account of it from the Baptist. Right. So, and I think he talks about the Father's voice there, but then we don't hear the transfiguration in John, as you already mentioned. So here we do have the Father's voice speaking from heaven in John's gospel very directly. Jesus says, it's not for my sake, it's for yours. Then he starts talking about the judgment of this world and the ruler of this world being cast out. What's what's he saying in verse 31? Yeah, so basically we have this, this idea that Jesus is showing up, and when he is when he is coming into his glory, it's he is taking on the the rightful rule of all things in heaven and on earth. He is stepping into that position that is his by right. He he is supposed to be the one uh, who is in charge of all things. Um, and so the judgment of this world, the ruler of this world will be cast out. Jesus has talked about this before already, uh, but the idea here is that during this final week, as Jesus has now come in uh, in the triumphal entry, now the king is back in his city. He will be on his throne. Yes, uh, it will be a throne that's actually shaped more like a cross, um, but he is coming to take up uh, rulership uh, of all of this, which means uh, the one who has been ruling sort of instead ever since the fall into sin um, is going to be cast out. He has no more uh, no more authority here, and what he had before was usurped. It was it was stolen. It wasn't his to begin with. I've actually talked about this with my confirmation class. I mentioned we were talking about the um, the uh, the second article uh, in the Apostles' Creed uh, a few weeks ago, and one of the things that came up was in the Catechism. There is uh, this question that talks about what does it mean uh, that uh, the Son of God is my brother. And uh, as it sort of unfolds and unpacks it, it's it's one of those that has a lot of different answers, and they're like the letters, and like so A, it means this, and B, and it goes all the way to like F or something. There's a lot of answers to that one, but one of the answers is you know that he has all authority uh, in heaven and on earth, uh, and it's I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but 
we, when we talked about this, one of the things I had a, a, a student who raised their hand and asked the question, you know, does that mean that Jesus is in charge of government? Hmm. Ah, that's a, that's a good question, right? Yeah. Because our experience, when we look around the world, when we look at how society is going and we look at, you know, who is in power, not just in our country, but in other nations around the world, um, you know, our question and our, our, our temptation is to say, you know, um, Maybe Jesus isn't in charge of these things, right? Because it, that's not what our experience is. You've got, uh, you know, totalitarian dictatorships all over the world that are doing terrible things. And just the world seems to be spinning uh, like a top when it's about to fall over, you know, where it's just kind of wobbly and, and everything's awful, you know? And so we talked about what it means to rule and to have authority. Um, and one of the things, you know, I, I put the question back to them because uh, we, you know, just a just a week or two ago, we had talked about uh, the temptation of Jesus and that one temptation when the devil takes him up onto a high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and says, you know, bow down and worship me and I'll give the authority to uh, of all of these to you because it's been given to me, right? Well, it hasn't been given to him. He's a liar from the beginning. But I turned the question back around on them and said, um, is the devil the ruler of this world? And, and they they kind of hesitated a little bit, and not in not in every case, not in every situation. And they said, "Well, think about the the people who rule the world. Think about the leaders. Uh, what are they? You know, if we if we boil them down to how are they like us? How are they like all of mankind except Jesus? Oh, oh, well, they're sinners, right? And so you have this idea in verse thirty one of our text today uh, that this world is being judged." Uh, and the ruler of this world is being cast out. Um, and so insofar as the way that things go in this world is broken, is 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 lacking justice and righteousness, is lacking um, God's will being done, that there would be peace and love and harmony. Yeah, that is what Jesus has come to overthrow. Now, I still think that it's going to be a surprising way that he is going to overthrow it, and that's in verse 32 and 33, because he's going to overthrow all of these authorities, all of this this broken rulership that has been handed over to the devil. He's going to overthrow all of that by dying, which is not usually the way that victories are won, but the fact that he doesn't stay that way, the fact that he has uh, risen and lives and reigns to all eternity, that is going to bring out the fact that yeah, he actually is who he said he is. He is the author of life, and he's the um, the author of life's second edition, as it were, the resurrection. Uh, so that's the direction that all this is going. Was that, did I go way too far, uh, way too broad of a scope? I, I know I jumped around a little no, bit there. No, I, I, think, <laughs> I think it was helpful, especially as we do hear Jesus speak of the devil as the ruler of this world. I think it's that's an important thing to, to comment on, and I think you, you did so helpfully. The, I do want to make sure we get to the last two verses of our text, oh, sure. though, sure. because this is where, I mean, Jesus really brings it home, and John even gives us the comment as to what Jesus was talking about. So in verse 32, Jesus finishes by saying, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And then John the evangelist comments, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. We have about three minutes here, Pastor Beck. Help us to to wrap things up with these two verses. Sure. So when we taught the book of John in our New Testament class, um, there were all of these times when John the evangelist sort of gives us these little narrator cues, you know, and you kind of imagine, you know, you're watching a, a TV show or whatever, and you have somebody say something, and then the narrator just kind of chimes in. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. You know, and so we always, when we saw those, we'd go, thank you, narrator John, just because that's, that's such a helpful thing for us is that 
that he actually points us to when I am lifted up doesn't, doesn't just mean when I'm, when I'm put in a place of prominence or when I'm, you know, when people finally understand, but the thing that I want everybody to see is the final words of Jesus here in verse 32. When I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. All people means exactly what it sounded like. All people. Going back to the beginning of our text today, uh, we've got these Greeks who are representatives, as we have said, of, look, the whole world has gone out after him. Here we have the world coming to Jesus. And what is the point of all of it? This entire text that we've discussed today is that Jesus is going to be lifted up. He's going to be placed on a cross. And from that cross, as that cross is a beacon and an ensign, as it is a, a signal for the entire world, from that cross, he will draw all people to himself uh, to come to the faith, whether they are from a Jewish background, from a proselyte background, uh, from whatever background our listeners are. This will be the the sign of the glory of God that will draw all people to himself to restore that relationship so that uh, what is worldly in us will be judged so that the the ruler of this world who would rule our hearts um, so that he will be cast out. And instead, in his place, Jesus uh, will inhabit. He will make this place his his own home for us and for eternity. That is where this text is all headed. Jesus is the one who goes to the cross, and from that cross, he draws all people, even you, dear listener, unto himself. Pastor Dustin Beck is pastor at Holy Cross Lutheran Church in Warda, Texas. He's been helping us today to study John chapter 12, verses 20 to 33. Pastor Beck, thanks for being our guest today. My great pleasure, sir. God bless you. Lift high the cross, the love of Christ proclaimed till all the world adore his sacred name. One of the stanzas of that wonderful hymn, number 837 in Lutheran Service Book, stanza four goes like this. O Lord, once lifted on the glorious tree, as thou hast promised, draw us all to thee. That is what our Lord Jesus accomplishes by his death on the cross. He draws us sinners to himself so that in him we would have forgiveness and eternal life. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about the gospel according to St. John, we would love to hear from you. Please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. You can also download the KFUO app on your favorite app store, and you can use the open mic feature to send a message to us that way. Either way, please let us know what your questions and comments are. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.